Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us on a Friday morning, Erev Shabbos here at JM and the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Yeah, you're making me hungry for the old pancakes and eggs breakfast and things. Are you skipping the corn muffins? You're going straight to the pancakes? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Or well, has, it was or a highlight for me. Or but, has, uh, has COVID affected your memory? I mean, come on. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember on your kipper to do I mean, it, it goes straight from show, right? Show in the lobby, straight to the platter with the corn muffins on it. Simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't a big corn muffin guy in those days, but uh, not anymore. I would be, and now it's only the pancakes you're interested in. <laughs> You've graduated. Ah, uh, those were the days, Mister Homeline. Those were the days when crowds were encouraged, where we didn't mind if fifty or sixty people were hovering over us and tuned in, or not even tuned in, but listening in to our conversation in the lobby of the Homoac Hotel on a Friday Thanksgiving morning. I was actually trying to think how many times it probably happened. It may have happened four or five times, you know. Like, it happened pretty often, frankly, that we were up there well, doing the show. So yeah, The David Mintz, uh, yeah. very hospitable, and uh, it was sure. a great institution. It's a shame that kids today don't don't have those kind of places to go to. It. That's right. Rumor was you were actually sitting in the lobby up there in uh, near El- – where, where, where was it? Spring Glen. And you were actually waiting for this morning's show to start, but that rumor, I assume, was just a, a – a farcical and comical account, right? Another one of those false sightings, right? <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> uh, getting nostalgic here on a Friday of Thanksgiving weekend. What can I tell you, folks? Uh, well, we'll start with what clearly is the story of the week. And frankly, one of the reasons that I wanted to make sure not to uh, postpone our conversation, uh, and that is the Prime Minister flying to... Um, Saudi Arabia and meeting with the Saudi Crown Prince. And now, I, I don't, you could bring us up to date if even you can keep track of who's denying this story and who's not. It seems it really did take place with all the denials that are happening. Tell us the background of this meeting in Saudi Arabia. So this was a meeting that it seems was brokered by uh, the special envoy for the United States for the administration for on Iran, Elliot Abrams. And he had been visiting the region uh, on the Iran-related issues. And they came together in the city of Neom, which is a coastal city in Saudi Arabia. Prime Minister took a private plane of a businessman from Israel to try and avoid detection. But as you know, they monitor all the flights, and you can easily see the patterns. And that uh, later people had, I mean, at the time, people noticed the, the, the this unidentified plane on a strange uh, trajectory, and he came there, uh, it seems, I mean, nobody else seemed to have known in Saudi Arabia or in Israel. He did not inform his counterpart, uh, Gans or Ashkenazi, but he did take with him the head of the Mossad, Yossi Kohn, who has been doing a lot of the outreach to the Arab countries, Uh, it seems Prime Minister trusts him and has been using him uh, increasingly in, in roles that go beyond the traditional role of uh, the head of the Mossad. And they uh, met. They, I know that there were discussions to try and, uh, and mostly, I guess, assume about Iran and about the new administration, how people will, how they will relate to it. Uh, it did not result in in an announcement of uh, that they would follow the example of the UAE. But, you know, it's a process, as I said to you, that many times that I believe strongly it should be a step-by-step process with some of the countries that they're not going to just jump into the full 
recognition, and it's not essential. I think the message of this meeting uh, got out clearly to to the region and to those who who needed to see it. And the um, you know the Turks see it, the others, uh, and, and as we see the increasing aggression on the part of Iran, aggressiveness and on the part of Iran and on the part of Turkey and others, it's important that they get a, a clear message. But obviously, uh, the message was primarily to Iran and perhaps to, to people in the incoming administration. Uh, and Saudi Arabia is likely to face increased scrutiny in the new administration on human rights and other issues. Uh, so this was a warning to Iran as it seems to be stepping up its nuclear activities, or certainly has been all along, and um, and perhaps sending a diplomatic uh, message as well. Also a warning to his colleagues, meaning Netanyahu, that, uh, hey guys, I'm still in charge. They must have been furious that this was kept a secret, especially now, frankly, in an era where it's almost impossible to keep these things secret. And by the way, speaking to that point for a moment, as, as we discuss, you know, the way things are, to, it's funny, you were talking about this in regard to the to the Catskills, but, you know, the, how different things are today. I mean, it would be unheard of for the head of the Mossad to accompany anybody on a mission like this. I mean, first of all, it's not really the uh, the goal or the uh, the aim of the Mossad, right? That's not really what their that what their purpose is, and you know to to, to participate in let's call it negotiations or discussions, right? That's not really there. But and but wouldn't am I right though that this is something that would never have happened, even if his role is expanded and he's very trusted by the prime minister, etc. It still is nothing that would ever happen years ago. As I said, it's not. I don't think it was traditionally part, although. Um, heads of the Mossad did visit many Arab countries for intelligence sharing, uh, much more than people would actually know. Ah, all right. So maybe it is more common, and they somehow kept it a secret. But again, today it's just so hard to keep a secret. It makes it very difficult. That we So we know how they reacted. It didn't look like they were too happy, meaning his colleagues. What about the Israeli media? Did they care one way or the other that he went? Well, they would have liked to have known, they say, and uh, but they can't be critical of it because they see that it's a very valuable uh, step. Right, and hopefully it'll lead to, to, to peace. But, you know, it's funny, you mentioned the human rights issue. Uh, this case with the, you know, the woman who was uh, trying to promote women driving in, in Saudi Arabia and now being tried in some type of, you know, um, terror court, terrorism court, uh, and in general the whole human rights issue, it really does show us a big difference between uh, the UAE, Bahrain, etc., uh, and Saudi Arabia, they they are you know willing security wise, especially regarding Iran, they're willing to negotiate with Israel. But if you think their country is going to suddenly become like some of the Gulf state countries are, it's just not going to happen. It certainly won't happen quickly, right? Each each country has unique set of circumstances, and if you look even at Egypt and Jordan, which have long had twenty six years. Uh, since the last agreement was with Jordan, um, that there's still not a piece of the people. You don't see the kind of interaction that you see in the UAE with Hanukkah trips and, and Thanksgiving trips uh, going on. Now. And JMN and broadcast coming up December the 8th. And, of course. <laughs> uh, uh, so, you know, each one is unique, and there are different pressures and circumstances that dictate the freedom with which uh, people can move. Uh, as you know, I met... Uh, with MBS, uh, with the Crown Prince Saudi Arabia, uh, several times, and we obviously discussed all of these issues. 
And I think he, he sees the benefit. All these countries want to move away from being dependent on, on oil and gas income because they know that uh, they see the handwriting on the wall, that this is not going to be there forever. And uh, so they see Israel's high tech as critical to them. They also look at the overall um, geopolitical situation. And most of all, as they said, you know, Israel is, um, uh, what do they call it, the, the, a permanent aircraft carrier, that it, it can't go anywhere, it's got to stay there, right. and that they see it as an ally in the fight against um, against Saudi, against Iran, and the Saudis are, are obviously very much concerned with that, because they're the prime target right now for um, uh, for Iran, as is, UAE has been, and certainly Bahrain was for many years because it's a small and, and weak country. It's a Shiite population, and it's 14 miles across a waterway from the Katif region of Saudi Arabia, which is where the energy is, and that is also um, a predominantly Shia population that Iran has tried to stir up many, many times and infiltrate. So each each country has a problem. He also has a father, the king, King Salman, who's alive, who seems to be, you know, still very conservative in his willingness to um, to make some big leaps. Whereas in the other cases, they um, and even in Oman too, which has not yet uh, moved completely. Uh, the uh, the late Emir was uh, received Netanyahu. Uh, Sudan is still working. Others are working on it, and I think. Each one will go at a different pace, but the change, I think, is irreversible, and all the factors that are pressing now, and if, even if the administration doesn't make it as much as the new administration, won't make it as much as a priority as the old one did, uh, I don't think that they can, they want to or, or can reverse it, and in fact, a lot of this is, is of concern about what the new deal, when we hear about the lessening of sanctions or other measures that um, that might be taken. We see Iran stepping up their activities that in the nuclear program, certainly with this new facility in Natanz, after the overground one was attacked and largely destroyed, this one is underground. And so you don't know what's really going on, but we do know that they have moved to a more advanced centrifuge. They know that they have violated the, all the standards, meaning the, the amount of, of enriched uranium that they're allowed to have. We know that they are putting in the UF, uh, F6 gas into the, into the um, uh, centrifuges. I mean, we can talk about each of those things and, of course, negotiating arms sales because of the limitations are no longer in effect. Uh, selling oil much more, most of it clandestinely or through Turkey or through Iraq. So they're violating on each count, and if you look at the more aggressive behavior that they and others, um, the, the uh, Turkey is moving on, on virtually every front that uh, one can imagine to see, to, to um, expand their footprint, to, to uh, I mean, I think they control five and a half thousand miles of Syria, they, they control, they are, are uh, in Libya, they are all over the region, as Egypt this week um, announced its efforts to counter Turkish growing influence in, in Somalia because they see it uh, as uh, malicious, I think was the word they used. Five and a half uh, thousand miles in yeah. Syria? Well, yes, but that's square miles. Yeah, I get that. Uh, but yeah. How big is Syria? Wow. Oh, it's a 
big country, but you know it's not as big as it sounds. But they control various places, but those areas, um, and uh, you know when you you um, you saw some of the elite forces of Egypt and Air Force arrived at the Marwai Air Force Base in the Sudan for joint exercises. Those are messages for Somalia. That's why each thing. Is not necessarily what it seems to be. Right. It's always, always in the Middle East, another layer, because Turkey opened a new base near uh, Mogadishu, which those who are old enough will remember well from the yep. wars there, sure. and uh, and so started to, to look for uh, oil exploration off the coast of um, Somalia. And and at the same time, as both the countries are losing their uh, you know, support domestically and people, young people feeling alienated and, and the economic conditions are terrible. The, the, um, uh, they both are pursuing the neo-Ottomism and, and, and the um, resurrection of the Persian Empire. And this is, and the secularism in, in, each, in Turkey is all but, but gone. So we, we have these dynamic situations which require and threaten the Arab countries as much as Israel. Right. So it brings them together. So I mean, now I see how big Syria is, but boy, Turkey's really. Whew. You know, it's a shame, by the way. It, it looked like Israel and Turkey, how you know, was warming relations. You know, a few years ago, it looked like they were on the road to, mm-hmm. so, to sort of doing what Israel and the UAE did. Right, sort of have like an understanding of of tourism and under, which you you said has always been active. Well, they have full diplomatic relations. We have an embassy. Israel has an embassy there, and the the, the uh, sometimes there's no ambassador because they recall him. And after the uh, Mavi Mamara, they did, and for a long time there was no ambassador sitting there. But they have full relations. And the interesting thing is that the trade has sustained itself at the high level. Because the people don't buy into the boycott of Israel, even if the government was going for it at the same time, they allowed all the, the trade to continue unabated all of this time. And, you know, before Corona, there were, I think, 11 flights a day of Turkish air into Israel. It might even have been 13. And it became the, the air, uh, airplane of choice for many people uh, flying into to, uh, Israel. Uh, so, you know, they, they, they don't sacrifice the dollars or the uh, lira for principle. So despite they, their, they, they so, know how to use it so and exploit it for political purposes. So despite their leader, there's despite their leader. Seriously, they're still be able to you know be in the community of nations and and conduct the type of business and type of tourism you just described. Well, that's a real uh, really good question and an issue, and we don't know. That I mean, NATO is afraid of letting them go or throwing them out. In fact, the Europeans this week are going to discuss putting sanctions on on Turkey um, for a variety of reasons. And but you know, they've weaponized the immigration issue. They can release millions of of, of uh, immigrants into Europe at will. They you know they control them and and they can activate the terribly uh, uh, huge. Turkish population. I mean, millions of people in Germany, and uh, and we know that their operatives, like like uh, Iranians, are are all over. And he's building mosques all over, which he controls, which are Muslim Brotherhood oriented. And he sends a f- the message every Friday what they're allowed to say in the mosques. Mm. And these are I've seen them all over Europe. That they're building in Africa, in South America. He, he uh, people don't realize when I talk all the time about the hegemonic goals of Iran and, and of Turkey, people don't realize how expansive those activities are. 
and you see it from from uh, the Pacific to the Atlantic. And it's all history repeating itself. You look at that whole region, this has been going on for centuries. This is mm-hmm. what happens when a country comes in, starts influencing another one. And of course, it all starts with religion and education, and then it's uh, taken from there. Uh, it's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web, and AlchemSiegel.com, and the AlchemSiegel Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holmline is with us, Executive Vice Chairman. Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. I don't know if I would say this uh, when we're actually in Dubai, but I'll say it here, and that is that uh, unlike um, unlike um, uh, the UAE, which was pretty happy with the money and with the weapons that they got uh, in this whole you know, negotiation to warm up to Israel, uh, unlike them, Saudi Arabia, we should point out that Saudi Arabia did make it clear, if I read this correctly, that they would insist that any deal with Israel include some type of uh, comprehensive deal between Israel and the PA. Do you think they are simply speaking to their constituents when they say that, or do you think they mean it? Uh, I think both is true. Uh, I can tell you that throughout the Arab world, they're, they're just sick and tired of the Palestinian issue, the, the, the not the humanitarian issue. They, it's an irritant to them. It's an issue that excites their streets. I'm quoting, these are what different leaders have said to us, uh, but they're they're upset about the kleptocracy, that all the money that they gave has been stolen, and that the, nothing has been done to improve the lot of the people, and that to become something that can unsettle any of the regimes in the region if the people mobilize over that issue because of increased relationship uh, with Israel. It is not true in the UAE. It wasn't true in in um, some in Bahrain, uh, which have a less of an affinity than let's say the Saudi Arabia uh, might on this issue. Uh, I mean, the PA continues to to act in in this arrogant way where they're listing demands for talks with Israel. There, they um, why does uh, so, why does Saudi Arabia placate them like that? Then they could just avoid the whole topic and bring it bring it up another time. Why do they because because amongst the people that's quote street it still resonates. It's not. You know, if, if you look at the deal but the, in Jordan's new government's statement, there are 12 platforms or principles. Uh, the Palestinian issue is number 11, and that's the country that is most impacted by it. And when you, one of the leaders of the countries we discussed said to me, if you ask my people for the top 50 issues, I don't know that this would make it. Today. Would, it would it be the same in Egypt, by the way? I'm just curious. Uh, no, in Egypt, there, it would be lower. remember that there was much greater indoctrination of hate against Israel, and unfortunately it still continues at times, even though in these countries they have changed the textbooks. We've seen articles and TV broadcasts that try to build understanding. They talk about the history of the Jewish community. Um, the Saudi leaders uh, to us have, have told me, you know, then they say things like Moses went through Saudi Arabia after Har Sinai, or in Egypt... They um, they are, are rebuilding the synagogues. They are re- re- trying to resurrect the, the Jewish history, uh, and that's true in, in some of the other countries. Even in, in places like UAE, which traditionally everybody believes had no Jewish community, there were many Jewish businessmen who used to travel there in the Middle Ages uh, and even later. It was a the waypoint station between Europe and the Far East, and there were a couple hundred Jews living on the island of Hormuz, where the Straits of Hormuz is. And in fact, recently they just found the gravestone of a Jewish businessman who died crossing uh, the UAE, uh, and uh, the people with him knew the Jewish law about having to bury him then and there, and they did. And on the grave it says his name and everything on the grave marker. 
so there there are longer histories than people know uh, and relationships that date back. I'm sorry, hundreds of years. I don't remember the original question, but <laughs> but it doesn't matter. My original. I mean, I, I, I supplemented the original question by asking you if in Egypt that would be the same thing. Oh uh, yeah. So in Egypt, you know, in all these countries, there's a, a sort of detoxification process that's necessary that you can't have educated people paid for all of the decades. And also Israel is still seen uh, as uh, negative. The Palestinian issue uh, reverberates with them, but there's much more concern and anger now about what's happening in the Gaza Strip and the fact that they are turning away from Egypt and towards Qatar and to uh, and to Turkey uh, and replacing both Egypt and Saudi Arabia and the the uh, violence that still emanates from there against the Egyptian targets, uh, the fighting in the in the Sinai against uh, ISIS, uh, Muslim brother and other terrorist entities. So the and and the hatred of of Iran continues. Right. Yeah. So it's it's. Uh, it's a long process. It requires a real commitment on the part of the governments, and too often they will people will resort to appeals of this kind to divert people's attention and you know to show their bona fides. They will attack you know or be critical of the uh, of Israel, but behind the scenes things are moving ahead with every country. Yeah, understood. Um, all right, let, let's let's. I'll give you the whole list, I guess, and you could either you know take it one by one or just give us a general account because people are asking me about your opinion regarding the incoming administration. So he has uh, incoming Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. He's got um, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. He's got NSA National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, and at the UN Linda Thomas Greenfield. Anything you could tell us about these or uh, or anything general you could say about the way he's forming this cabinet? especially vis-a-vis Israel? So um, each of these people has their own unique history. You can't lump them together. Each one is different. Uh, there were uh, people who were of much greater concern who had been muted to, for these positions, um, and it's certainly not yet coming to the uh, extremes in the Democratic Party or the demands being made of him. I think people would call this a mainstream government so far. Uh, uh, Ali Mayorkas is Jewish and a very committed Jew, a Juban, you know, a family from Cuba. And I know him well. We've worked with him. He's very strong on anti-Semitism. A good guy. We've worked with Tony Blinken over the years, although we've disagreed on on things and uh, I don't know if you've seen some of the speeches that are now things that have come out um, uh, and also Jake Sullivan we've known for many years and was a co-chair of one of our Iran projects um, and although we didn't necessarily agree with him on a lot of those issues related to Iran uh, these are all people who've had personal relationships with Israel strong feelings on Israel um, Tom, uh, Thomas uh, Greenfield, the new ambassador to the UN, I actually met in Equatorial Guinea when I was invited by the Organization of, of African Unity to attend their uh, meeting in uh, Equatorial Guinea, and I was given a delegation of seven seats, and it turned out, and, and the Iranians went crazy when they saw us there. They, they and the Palestinians and then some Egyptians joined them and they wouldn't start the meeting as long as we were there and it became and it was delayed an hour and a half and they finally we negotiated the deal out but we left we walked out after doing what we had to do there 
but it was we made it clear that we were making a decision that we didn't want to be in the room with these guys if this is the attitude that they're manifesting, and they all apologized later, not the Iranians and Palestinians and others, but the head of the OAU. But while, so we went outside, and we had meetings the day before with 13 heads of government from African countries, and that day we had many more, and even afterwards, and many of them came out and sat with us. But there was a, a black woman who we saw was also excluded, but she was told that there wasn't enough seats, that the United States was only given one seat, and the American ambassador was there, and they didn't let her in. Wow. And she's, she's the top State Department person on Africa. Wow. And so she came and saw us sitting with Yamakas there, and she came and sat with us for over an hour, and that was Thompson Greenfield. Thomas Greenfield, and uh, we had a really wonderful discussion. I mean, I don't think she has a track record so much on Israel, but what she said that day was uh, supportive. And uh, uh, again, you know, we have to see what the what the policies that will be set on high. There are other people um, uh, on the lower levels who have been nominated, um, and Avril Haines, who had who is the head. I think that's her name. Uh, had the intelligence right. agency. Right. Uh, now they say that she is Jewish or partly Jewish too. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's quite remarkable when you look at it that Biden's it's all married to Jews and vice president married to a Jew and all of these people with Jewish connections. Uh, it's, an, it's an amazing statement about America, yep. but we don't know yet. And we have to look now at the domestic side who will be appointed. And I think there you will see more of an appeal to the uh, to other segments of the Democratic Party. But I think the, pres- the president-elect or vice president, depending upon your view of things, right. um, uh you know, is asserting his, his the control over it, over the uh, direction by appointing people who would be more centrist, even though some of them have, uh, you know, they all have long records. Um, so it's- Mr. Mr. Lincoln, who, who is Jewish, uh, his stepfather was Sam Pissar, who was a famous Holocaust survivor lawyer, and his father, Donald Lincoln. Uh, they, the family had been involved in Jewish affairs and... Um, so it's it's a very they're very interesting appointments and I think different than what a lot of people expected. Has there been a Secretary of State who's Jewish since Kissinger? Or she was Jewish, right? Madeline Albright. Madeline, I was just say Madeline Albright. She would be the only one, right, between Kissinger and him and Blinken. Um, so, so basically, as your the description sounds to me like you know they all have they're all they all they all sound like good people to you, right? They they're 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 decent people. Let's put it that way, because frankly. You you know the element that had a tremendous amount of influence on the, uh, from the left, you know, on this election. We were really worried about the 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 the, the actual public background of some of these people. That could well, have... some of them have. Uh, I mean, the appointment for the deputy legislatively is on uh, is a Palestinian American, which wouldn't disqualify her. But I mean, she has made has made uh, some troubling uh, statements, and uh, Abraham Haines did, but she explained it and said it's not uh, a policy. And look, policy is set from on high. Everybody can impose their own imprimatur on a, on a particular uh, department or, you know, have some influence in the direction they take. But it, the policies that we are talking about, these will be set from the White House, I think, largely, White House and State Department, because right. Blinken is very close to the vice president. And uh, But you more than I can think of a million examples where, where certainly the Secretary of State and others have really... You know, shifted policy. Well, just look this week at Pompeo going yeah. to uh, yeah. the go, going to the Golan. It's a pronouncement about uh, 
you know, products. So, yes, they can do we, a lot. George Schultz did a lot. We, you know, and, ba- of, we, and we know what influence Baker had. Um, uh, Baker, yeah, that that is true. And Kissinger, right. you know, it was when he, he, he um, in all of the positions, I mean, certainly had influence, although, you know, as I said, ultimately the decision and the tone is set by the president right. and the uh, and the people in the White House, and that's why we're very concerned in looking at um, some of the names and some of the people that are are, are being muted. Uh, but so far, I have to say that it's not succumbing to the ex- extreme elements of the Democratic Party that people have predicted. Um, since you mentioned it, with your indulgence for a second, I just want to pull it up. Uh, this was the uh, exact quote of what uh, the Secretary of State wrote in the guest book. Yaakov Berg was with us earlier this week, the owner of the Psygoat Winery. It is a blessing to be here in Judea and Samaria. Unbelievable just to hear those words. May I not be the last Secretary of State to visit this beautiful land. thought that was a beautiful way of putting it. Um, uh, what did... Uh, oh, and by the way, speaking of, um, of uh, things coming from the White House, um, just so I can understand this correctly... If a different president would have been, you know, in the White House, they would have had the ability to extend Jonathan Pollard's um, uh, probation? Or not probation, uh, 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 postponement of parole, let's put it that way. In other words, is this a real real Trump gift to Bibi, how the media is painting it, or no president could have prevented this from, you know, running out of time and, and him being completely free? Well, there's a parole board that makes or commission that makes a decision, but usually their recommendations came from on high to them. Uh, and I think that the president um, he, uh, he he didn't have to issue a pardon; they just did not renew the restrictions. Right. So and, he and, is and, now and, free and, completely. And another president could have. Another president they could have extended it. They could have I mean, it, it renews uh, as. Uh, and unfortunately renewed for much too long and god willing he'll he'll be able to leave and will leave soon his wife yeah. is, is getting uh treatment for cancer so I think that will delay their departure but as far as i know there's no other restriction now in place that would prevent them from going netanyahu spoke to him and invited them and um unfortunately the mr olmert's comments i think were really misplaced and inappropriate saying you know he shouldn't come yeah but, uh, but i know that when every prime minister that i know when they were in the white house in, made a pitch to in, be the one to including olmert including olmert I think so. I have to check again, but I remember being there um, as he right before he went, and he told me that that he was going to raise it. So I don't know what changed. I don't know what uh, yeah. you know what, what what is different today. But I think that you know Pollard has proven that he's been quiet. They haven't been rallies and they led demonstrations during, right. during this time, which people were saying and they're afraid in Israel he'll get a very warm welcome and uh, not to. to because of what he did, which people acknowledge was wrong, but because, you know, he paid such a heavy price because yeah. of uh, that. If they're smart, they'll do it under the cover of darkness, frankly, unlike some other times that uh, that high-profile people have left. Um, I think he should be able to live his life normally. He doesn't have to do it in the dark. No, I'm talking about just the arrival. coming into the country. I'm talking about just the arrival in Israel, although COVID, frankly, is probably going to temper the celebration anyway, but whatever. Um, what do you think of the UN decision regarding the Supreme? The UN decision. What do you think of the Supreme Court decision regarding a gathering for prayer? 
services and religious institutions? Well, I think you have to see it on two levels. One is that the uh, the lawsuit um, brought about the desired result, and uh, that it signed. It. But on the other level, to see that this is the new court and the new justice uh, acquitted herself uh, on the right side of this issue, and the general assessment is that if uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was there, the five four majority would have gone the other way. Right, uh, and. Um, you know, it's only one step in this battle, but it is an important one. And as the governor said, you know, the areas now are not under restriction that the House of Worship. But I think it's a principle that is established, and not just for New York, but for around the country. Uh, so it's um, it's significant, certainly as a statement. Finally, uh, there are people who are pointing out to me. I haven't seen this yet. There are people who are pointing out to me that there are. Um uh, some outrageous accounts in President Obama's new book about the establishment of the state of Israel. Are you familiar with this at all? You haven't looked at it yet. Uh, there are interesting articles that have appeared about it. I did not buy the book. Uh, I lived it. I don't know if I have to read it. But I, <laughs> but I, I will uh, eventually um, do so. I, I will need to see. Uh, I'm not going to read 980 pages of, <laughs> of, um, of uh, his book. But I, there are things in there that people have written and analyzing that are very critical of Israel and distorting uh, the relationship. So we have to to see. But it's, it is a bestseller, and it you know it will have some influence. I, I don't think it should exaggerate the impact that uh, these books have uh, generally. And certainly, Vice President Biden lived through it also. So he's not going to he's not going to learn anything new from the book. Or I doubt that it will influence him in one way or another. Look, events on the ground are, are, are going to be the more important things for all of us about what happens. And we're seeing the aggressiveness. Look along the Golan, the placement of the IEDs, the fact that the uh, Iranian militias, Hezbollah and others, are, are becoming more aggressive. Israel responding to it um, more intensely at times. But uh, when they placed it near the Kalkilia, Kalandia crossing in North Jerusalem, and we see bombs from the Palestinians and others, they're all going to take advantage of this uh, period. Uh, the tunnel that was discovered in Gaza turns out to be the deepest one yet. And, uh, you know, so they, they try to cross in the north and in the south, overland, but drones and rockets and underground with these tunnels and, uh, and on the ground with the IEDs and explosives that they place on the border. So the situation, you know, people don't tend to read these things and, and we're so distracted with election and COVID to, to look at the reality on the ground that there are really serious, uh, challenges. The, the uh, aggressiveness of Iran and Turkey, that both internally and externally, you know, the fact that they're flogging Christians in, in Iran, and it gets no concern, no reaction. It's just astonishing to me still that you don't have an uprising of concern and outrage about what is, what's going on and how minorities in many of these countries uh, are being treated uh, by them, uh, and yet uh, Israel comes under constant criticism, much of it Ill illegitimate or even without any basis. So we have a, a job to do, and people have to remain alert. Don't get caught up in the politics, get caught up in the reality and to, to fight uh, for against it. And certainly on the anti-Semitism front where it's critical. You know, this is the 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg trials mm. this past week. Wow. And, and I would 
venture to say that most of your audience today would not know much about the Nuremberg trials, if anything. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really sad because I tested it on young people. This was on November 20th, 1945. And, you know, it was a whole new era in international law. They, they couldn't be charged with war crimes because that didn't exist, that charge. It only came about because of the of the trials and about the things that were said there that people and young people should read. You know, Nuremberg was the city where uh, Hitler promulgated the um, the race laws in 1935 that paved the way for the Holocaust. Right. But it was also for pragmatic reasons that it was held there because the... Uh, they needed a big building, and we should remember Chief Prosecutor Robert Jackson and the others who, you know, the, the trial lasted 218 days. Wow. You know, and uh, these guys were, were real heroes. Morris Abram, who was later chairman of the conference presidents, was uh, an assistant to to the great uh, um, uh, Jackson. And, he, um, and people should read about it. Young people should be told about it. 100% right. Uh, Malcolm Holman is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Wishing you a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak again next week. God willing to have a good Shabbos. Thanks so much. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos on this Parsha's Vayetz.